Good morning, everyone. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 7, so we're going to be reading through that now. It's uh, prophetic in nature, so it includes a lot of symbolism and imagery. It may seem a little out of sorts, but just keep your eye on the details, and then uh, Michael will be walking us through this part after. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and vision in his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of Heman were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion that had an eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I consider the horns, and behold, there came upon among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked by the roots. And behold, its horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I look, th thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothes were white as snow, and his hair his head on as pure as wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire ensued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and I looked, the beast was killed." and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven there came like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four, four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and Ever. 
Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from the rest, exceedingly terrifying, its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horns that came up before the three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of these kingdoms, ten kings shall arise, and another, another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall be put down three, those three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And shall think to changes the time and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed in destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color was changed, but I kept the matters in my heart. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen. Thank you, Lee. He's got me excited to preach it now. Are you guys excited? Daniel 7, my goodness. It is a wild passage, and I'm sure this is a passage for uh, many of you that you've come to and you say, this is why I don't understand the Bible. Anyone feel like that right now? A lot of wild imagery, a lot of things going on here. Uh, well, hopefully by the end of our time together, you have a greater understanding of what's happening in chapter 7 and, and really how does it apply to us today and how does it teach us about the purpose of God in this world. And so we're, we're going to be looking at Daniel 7, and this is almost like nothing we've read so far in the book of Daniel. Because the first six chapters have basically been about the lives of Daniel and his three friends, right? How they're interacting with the, the various empires, how they're acting as exiles in a different world that has different values, different culture, and try not to assimilate but follow the purposes of God in that world. And now that we're in chapter 7, and as we move through the rest of the book, we're looking at a completely different genre, We've been looking at narrative for the first six chapters, stories, and now we're looking at apocalyptic, right? Who likes that word? <laughs> Wild stuff going on. And so we're looking at this apocalyptic language, and it's such a shift in the book uh, that even the language has shifted here. 
And obviously we're reading in English, but actually chapter 7 is written in Aramaic where Daniel 8 and 12 are in Hebrew. So it's, it's quite a massive shift in the book of Daniel. And so let's, let's jump right into it. There's a lot of process in this chapter together, so we're just going to dive into it together. So verse 1, what do we hear about the, the setting of the book? Uh, the first year of who? Belshazzar, right? And so where are we going in the narrative? Is this post-Lion's uh, Den, or where is this? It's back a little bit, right? We, we've stepped back into time, so to say. This is a vision, this is a dream that Daniel had earlier in the story, but now he's really processing it through Scripture. And so this is a flashback about a, about a decade before the story of Daniel's in the lion's den that we talked about last week. And, and as Daniel looks back, he has this dream, this vision in his mind where he wrote down this dream. And this is different than if you have a dream where the night before you probably had too much pizza and you have sort of this weird dream, right? This isn't like that. This is a vision that God has given Daniel and God is teaching the people in exile something specific about God's character and God's purposes for this world. And this is what we begin to read about. This is what Daniel says. He said, I saw my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up what? Stirring up the great sea. And out of that sea, what came up? Four beasts, okay? So what's all this metaphor? What's all this language? What's all this symbolic nature talking about? Well, first of all, we have to understand uh, culturally at this point in history and in this culture, uh, was the sea a good thing? What did the sea represent? It represented chaos, right? It represented darkness. It represented uh, death. And so, in other words, what's happening right now is there's chaos and there's death and there's darkness throughout the world, and out of that arises four beasts who are all different from one another. And so what Daniel has this vision of is really the state of the world where empires and kingdoms and kings are basically exercising power and authority in a way that's causing chaos and destruction, right? And is that not exactly what we see from the Babylonian Empire? Is that not what we see from the Medo-Persian Empire, right? Death and destruction and chaos. And so he brings up these four beasts. Uh, what are these four beasts? Well, first of all, we have a lion, right? But this lion isn't a regular lion. It also has wings. And not only does it have the wings of an eagle, but it has a human mind. Interesting. Then the second beast we see is this bear, and the bear has a raised sides with three ribs, and it's devouring flesh. And the third beast is a leopard with four wings. It has four heads, and it has authority to rule. And then the fourth beast is this different beast that has those large iron teeth. It has ten horns. It has a little horn with these eyes and like a human mind. Really weird imagery, isn't it? But what is it telling us? Are these just normal animals? No. 
So these are much more than normal animals. These are literally what we would describe in nightmares as what? Monsters, right? These are monsters that have come out of the chaos and darkness of this world. And so these four beasts are representing these four monsters. Now, uh, modern scholars, the, the primary interpretation and understanding of these four beasts is as the four kings and kingdoms, specifically around the time of Daniel and even post-Daniel. And so the, the first one, um, th- this operates very similar to the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, remember? where the king's dream in chapter 2 represented all these different empires. Daniel 7 is really a correlation with Daniel 2. And so let's say, um, even though you guys might know the answer, I'm sure you might even be able to guess it after we walk through chapter 2. So the, the first beast is like a lion, right? Which kingdom was fascinating and obsessed with lions? Any guesses? The Babylonians, right? Good job. You guys already catch it. So the first kingdom is, is most likely Babylon, right? The second beast is like a, a bear, but it's a split kingdom, right? What could that represent? The Medo-Persian kingdom, right? A split kingdom, right? The third beast is like a leopard, and it's like a bird, meaning it's fast. And what was the kingdom that came after the the Medo-Persian Empire with Alexander the Great expanding throughout the world through Europe and um, uh, rapidly? What would that be? Greece, right? This expansive kingdom expansion of Greece, the Greek Empire. And and then you have sort of this last beast, and it's crazy, and it's represented with iron, and then it has these ten leaders, and as we know from, or these ten horns, and as we know from the Greek expansion after Alexander the Great, how many leaders did he appoint after him? Does anyone know? Ten, right? So this is most likely the Roman Empire who was extremely antagonistic against the early church, who experienced a massive amount of persecution against the early church, and this is most likely the four symbolic empires represented here in Daniel. However, I want us to bring our minds to another reality. Because even though we can talk about these four kingdoms and these four beasts, so to say, on another level, these beasts are symbolic for all empires down through human history, aren't they? And in the same way we looked at Babylon was much more than just a city, it's an archetype. In the same way, these four beasts, even though they represent kings and kingdoms, really it's this description of empires who are monsters in nature. And so these kingdoms and kingdoms uh, represented by beasts, they're not human. They're not animals. They are what? They are monsters. Now, now why would God be giving this vision to Daniel of these, these monsters uh, they're, they're these inhumane kings, and they have these dehumanizing policies, and it goes beyond beasts. They're more like monsters. Why is this description here in Scripture? And really, this goes back to the creation event itself. Because when God created animals, there's a very key free phrase in Genesis that we have to pay attention to. 
When God created animals, it says, and it was according to their kind. Interesting. In other words, if, if bears are going to procreate, what are they going to procreate? Bears, right? If humans are going to procreate, what are they going to procreate? Humans, right? Pretty, I, I'm sure it would be a shock if one of us have a kid that's not a human, right? <laughs> and, and so God created this order, this system of structure in the creation account that was supposed to be good. And yet now what we see is this disordering of creation itself. And we see these creatures that are being described and depicted as out of design by the Creator Himself. And they are deifying or defying His created order. They're going against the very purposes of God's order and what is good. And they are not human, and they are not even beasts. They are monsters in defiance against God. Are you guys catching that imagery? Again, this shows how important Genesis is. That's why it's at the beginning of the story, so we understand it. It tells us so much about the rest of the story. And again, these empires are monsters that trample against humanity. And so what do we see? These are inhumane and dehumanizing, powerful kingdoms. Now let me ask you, have we not seen these throughout the entirety of human existence, right? I mean, what are some examples we could think of right now of empires and kingdoms that have been inhumane and dehumanizing? What are some systems and structures and empires? Pardon? Yeah, even the Russian and Ukraine, you go back to communism, right? Yeah, Nigeria and what they, yeah. Yeah, the role of residential schools, the dehumanizing of the, the indigenous population. What are some other things? Yeah, mega corporations taking advantage of people. Fight the man, right, Lynn? Exactly. Yeah, the Nazi regime, right? Dehumanizing the Jews. Yeah, the Roman Empire. The Egyptian Empire of slavery, right? Even the, uh, the American enterprise of slavery. There's so many things. We could talk about the Armenian genocide. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And the reality we face as humans is that throughout history, that cycle has been repeated over and over again, where we look at people groups or individuals, and we dehumanize them to the point where we treat them like animals. And the systems and structures of human kingdoms is, is a cycle throughout history of dehumanizing individuals. And has not so much of the injustice that we have seen throughout history is because we have dehumanized one another? Is that not true? 
We have devalued one another. We have not seen one another as dignified beings created in the image of God, but rather we have degraded people to beasts at time throughout history, haven't we? That is what humans have done to one another. And so this question then that this passage brings out is, is first of all, what does it mean to be human? Which is a very crucial question in our culture today, is it not? What does it actually mean to be human? I mean, there's so many things that I find fascinating. There's a philosopher and scientist named Carl Sagan. Anyone heard of him? But he talks about how humans are made up of star stuff that we're basically stardust, and that somehow is supposed to give us value and dignity, but if I were to tell my daughter she's made of star dirt, I don't think that really gives her much value and dignity, does it? Right? There's so many competing understandings of what does it mean to be human. It's a very key question. But the ultimate question that, that Daniel 7 is facing is when we look at this pattern and systems of structures of empires and individuals who dehumanize one another to the point where they act in complete injustice, what is God going to do about it? Amen? Is that not a key question? When we look back at all the injustices of this world and the injustice today, we ask the question, well, what is God going to do about it? Does God even care about it? Does God affected by what is going on in humanity? This is the question. And this question begins to get answered in Daniel 7. And this is what we read. This is the response to the beasts, the monsters that are creating havoc and chaos in this world. 7-9, it says, and I looked. Thrones were placed. Now, what does thrones represent? Authority, power, right? And the ancient of days. Now, who would that be representing? What kind of language is that? Language of God, right? Language of eternal. Took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. In other words, there's this purity, there's this wisdom, obviously, with the, we, we sort of diminish white hair, and I know some of you try to hide white hair, but in this culture it was to be revered, right? It was respected. And the hair of his head like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. Now, that's pretty awesome imagery. Think about this. The throne of God is on wheels. Why do you think that imagery and description is there? What does it tell us about God's throne, His exercise of authority and dominion? It goes wherever He wants, right? His throne is not stuck in one place. In other words, the, the, the exercise of the authority of God can travel wherever He desires, wherever He longs for, and it's this aspect of not stationary. In other words, He's not uninvolved in the things of earth, but He's traveling around. And again, this takes us back to Daniel 2. What, what was the representation of all the other gods? That they didn't care less about humans. They could care less about the affairs of humanity. 
But our God is a God who cares and is involved with things, even things far away, so to say. He goes to where His people are, and He doesn't even have to leave His throne to do it. Beautiful picture. And so we, we have this beautiful description of the throne room of God, this universal dominion where He's exercising authority everywhere. And it's this description of even though the beasts, even though the monsters feel like they can hide from the authority of God, in reality they cannot escape it. That's the image here. And then we read further on. It says, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And then the what? The court in judgment. So what kind of scene is this? What is going on? This, this is a, a, a scene of, of justice. This is a courtroom scene. This is a scene where all the beasts have to answer to the Ancient of Days for all that they have done. This is the exercise of justice against inhumane practices. And, and so even though we, we have this description of God um, or these description of the beasts who are ruling and reigning, so to say, we, we realize that God will exercise judgment and justice over them. And, and this is crucial because the, the description of the beasts and the four beasts is that they are ruling over humanity, right? And it's this anti-creation image because the beasts are ruling over humanity, but what we read from the Genesis account and the creation account is who is supposed to have rule and dominion over all creation? Humans, right? This exercise of humans as to have dominion over creation, to rule and to reign over creation, and now that image from Genesis has been completely reversed. And so what we need then is this reversal and restoration of humanity's vocation. And the judgment comes from God to restore this. And so how does this happen? Here's the next very key image of Daniel. And I saw in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven. Now clouds again in the Old Testament. What does that often represent? What do we often see in the clouds? Yeah, the judgment and along with judgment, the presence of God, right? And so there came one like a, okay, like a son of man. Like a son of man. It's a very key, key title there. Now, what was Jesus' favorite title for himself? Does anyone know? It was this. It was this description, Jesus' favorite title for Himself in the New Testament was this, the Son of Man, okay? One like a Son of Man, and He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him, and to Him was given what? Dominion, glory, kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages to serve Him his dominion is the everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and is His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen, church? 
In other words, that telling us that King Jesus rules and reigns, that he has authority and dominion over all the beastly nations, the beastly empires, the beastly individuals that think they are ruling and reigning this world. That's a description here, a very key description. And so it gives us this understanding, this beautiful understanding of what the kingdom of God does for this world. It changes the very distortion of everything. And again, when Jesus first arrived on the scene, what did he say? He said, the kingdom of God is what? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus shows us what the kingdom of God is and what the kingdom of God looks like, okay? And He's given the authority. He's giving the power. He's giving everything. So this is, this is a crucial passage to understanding Jesus. Now, I bring that aspect up because I know for the majority of us, our minds are going to go there right away. But I need to pull this back for a second. Because in the context of Daniel, Daniel 7 doesn't just jump immediately to Jesus, okay? It's true that Jesus is the Son of Man. It's true that Jesus is represented here in this passage. But there's something that we have to touch on or we might miss the beauty of it. Because the interpretation of of Daniel 7 includes this as far as who are the sons of man. Says, but who? The saints. Okay? Who are the saints? The people of God, right? But the saints, the people of God of the Most High, shall receive what? The kingdom. And possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Now, now this is a very key for us to understand because it's telling us that the worshipers of God, the worship of Yahweh, will rule with King Jesus. In other words, this is a restoration of the original calling and vocation of humanity from Genesis. This takes us back to the story of what is a human and what they are called to be in Genesis And Daniel 7 is restoring that vision and purpose and calling of humanity. It's beautiful. So when we read Daniel 7, we can't just jump straight to Jesus as the Son of Man because we miss something about what God has actually done and what God has described in this passage. And and I love how how Tim Mackey, who's a a Hebrew scholar, and, and he says this, he says, Jesus is summoning A new humanity that can do what? That can rule the beast. Jesus' life and power can become our life and power so that we can rule the world as God's partners. But how? But Jesus style, right? Not like the beast, not like the monsters, but like Jesus. Why? Because we share in his life and power as followers of Jesus. So we lead and exercise dominion like Jesus. And what does that actually look like? In the power of service, in the power of humility, 
and in the power of self-giving love. Amen, church? This is the restoration of our vocation of what it means to be human, what it means to exercise dominion in this world as the people of God. It's through service, it's through humility, it's through self-giving love. Is that not absolutely countercultural to the way our world describes power and authority and dominion? Absolutely. But that's what it's practicing the way of Jesus. And I think this is crucial because when we recognize that Jesus has given us power to rule the beast, so to say, we have to fully understand what that means. Now, let's brainstorm for a second. What is the difference between a beast and a human? And just to caveat this, there are philosophers today that will say that is what's called speciesism. To elevate a human over an animal is speciesism, right? So that shows you where we are as a culture and understanding, defining what is a human. But let's brainstorm from our perspective, what is the difference between an animal, a beast, and a human? Yeah, we have a spirit, a soul. We have free will and emotions created in the image of God. Now, on the other hand, what is a beast, an animal driven by? Instinct, right? Impulse. In other words, when a bear realizes that it needs to eat, what is it going to do? It's going to go kill something, right? It's going to go eat something. It's driven by instinct. It's driven by impulse. It will act upon its nature. And there's no concept of humility. There's no concept of self-giving love. There's no concept of sacrifice and service in a bear, right? But that's what makes us different as humans. See, when humans act completely on impulse, and when humans act completely on instinct, is that going to be a very beautiful world? No, we're literally going to be acting like beasts. We're literally going to be acting like monsters. And we see this to be true in so many forms and fashions, and we see this to be true, obviously, with the empires and nations of this world. But if we're fully honest, we can see this is true in our own lives as well, is it not? Where it is so easy for us to act on impulse, it is so easy for us to act on instinct, which is often self-preservation and selfishness and desire. And yet to be fully human, to practice the way of Jesus, to be fully human as Jesus showed us how to be, is completely different. And so I, I'd say we would all agree, whether, whether we're Christians or even if we're religious or not religious, that to see a flourishing human, to see a human that is capable of doing everything they're called to do is not someone who is driven purely by instinct or impulse, right? Would we agree with that? 
But someone who is truly human and fully human is someone who can actually check their impulses, who can process against their instincts and discern what is right and wrong, and even able to sacrifice out of love for the other. It's a big difference there. This is what it means to be fully human. And so Daniel 7 is reminding us that what is fundamentally wrong with the empires and humans of this world is when we reject God's rule and authority and His purposes to be what we were created to be. And when we go against those purposes and when we go against that design and when we go against that created order, all we do is create chaos and darkness and beasts in this world. And we, we can think of circumstances in our life where that language of beast might apply. When you have bursts of anger, when you have bursts of violence, when you have bursts of animosity, is that very much not beast-like? Amen, church? Is it not? It's funny, like even at a basketball game last night, and it was a playoff game, so it was a little intense. So Becca was sort of said it was too intense, but that's okay. <laughs> but it's funny how even with like a sport, you can get people who are so competitive and so edgy that they almost become beast-like. Isn't that true? And yet the way of Jesus is for us to completely become what He has called us to be. And this is really the beauty of what we call the incarnation, that Jesus as God took on flesh, right? That's the language of Daniel 7, that Jesus is not only Son of Man, Ancient of Days, all this imagery, God, Jesus is fully God and fully man. We see this glimpse of it already in Daniel 7, but Jesus as God becomes human. He becomes what we are so that we can become what He is and so that we can die to the beast inside of us and the beasts that desire to control us. And this is the beautiful aspect of the Christian tradition. When the way of Jesus is actually followed by the people of God, it becomes a humanizing practice. When the people of God actually take on the vision that Jesus has for them, it becomes a humanizing movement that values the other. And this is beautiful because in Christianity, your humanity isn't based on what you can do. It's not based on your ethnicity, it's not based on your race, it's not based on anything, but it's simply based on you being dignified and having value because you're image bearers of God. That is the beauty that Jesus brings to us. And that beauty is really seen nowhere else in any other worldview out there. And so I, I, I close by saying this. Daniel 7, even though it's a lot of wild, weird metaphor that's hard for us to understand, really it's about the question of what is a human? How has humanity lost its vision that was given to us in Genesis? And as that 
loss of vision for humanity takes over worlds and cultures and kingdoms, they become like monsters and beasts. But it's Jesus as the Son of Man who shows us what it means to be fully human, that we can ever overcome the beast inside of us, and that Jesus as King, whose kingdom will be an eternal kingdom, will actually exercise justice and judgment to all these beastly empires. Is that not good news, church? Amen. Let's pray to that extent. Gracious Father, we come before you. And Lord, we celebrate that you are a God who is patient with humanity. And that you are a God who came to us to show us what it means to be fully human. Lord, we recognize that throughout the history of this world, and Lord, even if we're honest, the history of our own lives, Lord, so often the, the beastly nature, the nature of monster permeates and comes out. And yet you show us the way to destroy the beast within. And you give us the hope that you will destroy all the beastly kingdoms of this world. And that is your kingdom that will be an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion will last forever and ever. A kingdom of joy, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of generosity, a kingdom of love. Lord Jesus, you have shown us the way. You have shown us what it means to be fully human. And Lord, you have given us the power by your spirit to live out those realities. And so we pray for us as your people, as this church, that we would be a people who fully commit ourselves to practicing your way of what it means to be human. And Lord, that practice itself would be transformative for our culture. Lord, we don't have to take power and dominion in the way the world takes power and dominion. Lord, we simply have to live the way you've called us to live and be faithful presence of what it means to be human as our world and our culture shifts in the complete opposite direction. May our lives serve as a beautiful vision of what you have created us to do and to be. We thank you for that gift, gracious God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.